0: Remote and turn down the volume on Canberra's noise. This is it. This is as thick as it
1: gets. You're stark raving mad. Is anyone asking questions here? What is happening to mainstream
2: media? You You are are fake fake news. news. Well, I think sometimes we can disagree with the facts. I have never had more fun in my life.
1: This is represent. 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 Represent.
2: Represent. Represent. Represent.
1: On Sid Nation.
0: Good afternoon. You're listening to Represent on Sid Nation. I'm Claudia. I'm Maggie.
3: And I'm Oscar. Um,
0: On today's show, we'll be talking more about the follow-up from the Royal Commission that's been blowing up the news this week, as well as discussing some of the social causes surrounding the uh, terrorist attack or not terrorist attack in Toronto, depending on your opinion, Um, as well as talking about ISIS's online involvements and um, the Europol attempt to take down some of their broadcasting methods this week um, and their Twitter activities in general. Um, And of course, we'll be having head-to-head where we'll ask what was the best handshake of the week? But, as always, we want to hear your thoughts. Send us a tweet to at SinRepresent or follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash SinRepresent.
3: So we now move to the Royal Commission where public hearings have continued. This week, they're focused on the financial sector. So, just a bit of background. The Royal Commission was set up in response to various scandals of corruption and misconduct involving the banks. So, Royal Commission is an investigative body with... Um, essentially the powers of a court. It has the power to compel witnesses, the production of documents as among other things.
1: So last week we saw um, an investigation into the, some of the major banks. Uh, it was revealed that this Commonwealth Bank of Australia was charging dead customers for advice they obviously weren't receiving, as well as other customers who did not receive any financial advice. Um, it was kind of labelled as the no financial advice for a fee. Uh, we also um, talked about last week how the AMP head um, couldn't recall the number of times that the um, Australian Securities Investment Commission was misled, which is quite a damning um, thing to admit. Uh, he actually has resigned from his position in the wake of last week's hearings. Now this week we've seen, as Oscar mentioned, a new investigation into the Financial Services Commission. Um, which has also seen some quite shocking admissions. Um, What was kind of the most shocking thing you guys saw from the financial services in Royal Commission?
0: Well, we were discussing before the
1: program, I guess, the revelations about
0: Sam Henderson, who I didn't know much about before this week, but uh, was, yeah, a financial advisor who uh, I guess was a kind of a celebrity and had been sort of very... uh, vocal in the media about his job and he was actually the Association of Financial Advisors Practice of the Year winner in 2016, um, which is pretty insane given that
1: uh, things that have come out about his behaviour this week. Yeah, so we're going to actually go to a clip of him being cross-examined by uh, one of the lawyers in the finan- in the Royal Commission. Have a listen.
3: What is the amount I can roll over?
0: Was that Miss McKenna calling? No. Was that your customer service officer impersonating Ms McKenna? Yes. Did you know that your employee was impersonating Ms McKenna, Mr Henderson? No, I didn't, Uh, for the record that I was not aware of the impersonation. Mm -hmm. I was quite disappointed and uh, I certainly apologise for that behaviour of my staff member. I was incredibly disappointed. It was inexcusable. The Commission also heard. Uh, So what was sort of uh, revealed in that clip was Sam Henderson admitting... Uh, that, yes, one of his staffers had actually been making phone calls impersonating uh, clients um, and calling people on the phone pretending to be her. Um, And he uh, obviously denies having known about this, but I think that's uh, reasonably dubious given the evidence.
1: Yeah, it was was actually later revealed that the staffer made... um, Well, Mr Um, Henderson admitted that the staffer had made... Four or six calls impersonating his client, Miss McKenna, who we should point out is actually uh, quite a notable Australian. She works for the Workplace Commissions, um, and so when it was, rev- she called him multiple times. And when questioned whether he was in office in the office on that day, he admitted he had. Um, it had. He later admitted that he had actually. Um, uh, found out about his staffer impersonating a client and failed to fire her, although he did admit that he had um, wanted to and had sought advice, but later decided not to fire her for such a thing. I think it's very important to note that this was a, a very big um, revelation. Uh, the advice to the client could have triggered a $500,000 loss to her super fund. Uh, This is someone who's allegedly working in his customer's interest. This is obviously quite a dangerous um, revelation from one of the most respected and well-known financial advisors.
2: Yeah, um, I think it's really, you know, um, sad how they're uh, exploiting their client's trust into, you know, for profit or whatever sort of um, intention they're after. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I guess it will be interesting to see what the sort of uh, ramifications will be for the major parties as a result. Um, Yeah, especially in the lead-up to the budget, which has really been framed around, like, uh, you know, corporate tax cuts and, uh, yeah, not really pushing, like, an anti-bank narrative. But now I think um, it'll be really difficult for uh, the Coalition to defend their actions in this space. Uh, Kelly O'Dwyer and Scott Morrison have both... Uh, since come out and said, oh yeah, we probably should have done this earlier, but they really can't go much further than that in defending what they've done. So I think this will become a bit of a a huge winning issue for Labor, especially um, if the Royal Commission continues into February next year. Uh, then it will still be a live issue then. Uh, That will be really, really beneficial for Sean.
1: There is talk about extending the Royal Commission amid all these revelations. I think a lot of people were surprised about how much we're finding out about the mismanagement of financial services and banking in a very short amount of time. We have to remember that this is only a three-week-long Royal Commission. um, When usually Royal Commissions go for much longer, this is an attempt... um, It is seen as an attempt by the coalition to kind of sweep the issue under the rug. They were, um, if you remember, they were forced into this kind of by the Labour Party and a few of the nationalist crossbenchers who had been threatening to cross the floor on the issue and push for a royal commission, um, despite the Turnbull government opposing it. They were kind of really forced into it and they wanted to run it as quickly as possible and and now with all these revelations coming up and all this kind of shock, over the, the severity of the mismanagement, we might see it being extended. I'd be
0: surprised if it's extended to February. Yeah, that's what I, I saw someone saying that people have been
1: asking for it to be, but, yeah, I have no idea about how feasible that actually is to happen. But it's definitely going to loom over the budget, which is only going to be released in two weeks on uh, May 8th, um, on Tuesday. So it would I, I would love to see how Scott Morrison is going to sell... Uh, the proposed um, big bank, uh, sorry, uh, big corporations tax cuts in the wake of what is seen as very kind of uh, methodical and um, overarching mismanagement in one of the biggest um, industries in Australia.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it will totally change the frame of the budget um, coming just so like hot in the heels of that, which, yeah, will definitely be really interesting. I found the dates. So the interim report is due September 30 and the final report is due on February 1st. So I think it's like there will be multiple reports being released after the commission, and if it's extended, the report will be really close to the election. I think that's what um, the scandal about that is, which, yeah, would be really interesting to see.
1: I think we're already seeing the political ramifications now. Um, As you mentioned, Scott Morrison has had to backtrack on his pop, uh, previous statements um, last year in around August. He was calling the Banking Royal Commission a populist whinge by Bill Shorten. Um, he also called it a blanket sheet of paper with no terms of reference, as if, like, the Labour Party was just trying to scaremonger against the banks. I think it's um, it's very damning on the coalition, mm. and it's, it's going to be hard for them to kind of spin for themselves. Yeah,
0: um, actually I'm going to misquote this because I can't remember which uh, coalition politician it was that said this, but one of the coalition politicians who originally said that we won't reveal anything we don't already know has also come out saying, I think maybe it was Matthias Coleman, but that could be incorrect, saying that um, it didn't reveal anything that they didn't already know which is just the, the worst thing you could possibly say in the circumstances so um, I think yeah, it'll be coming out with that kind of, that kind of scandalous moments for Kelly O'Dwyer, Scott Morrison, Matthias Coleman, everyone involved in that. Thanks.
1: Yeah, so we're going to go to a song now. Um, this is uh, a very banking Royal Commission <laughs> song. This is Money, Money, Money by ABBA. They've kind of come into our radar because there's been an announcement that ABBA might be reuniting and producing an album in the coming few years. So I hope you enjoyed this blast from the past. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. Um, I should also flag that Nikki and I are now in the studio and right now we're talking about the horrific um, incident that happened in Toronto. Uh, this week on Monday, uh, Alex Missa- Missa- uh a man, killed 10 people by driving a van down a busy street in Toronto um, on Mond- uh, in, during the morning. Uh, there are 10 people dead and 14 wounded um, and the, vi- the victims are predominantly women ranging from their 20s into their 80s according to police um the crime has kind of shocked a lot of people because a lot of people didn't understand what the motivations behind the attack were um we've done a bit of research um we're kind of attributing the blame to the uh what is called an incel rebellion um here to explain what this all is, um, is our team. <laughs>
3: Claudia?
1: <laughs> um, so there's like a huge amount of detail uh, in the
0: history of the incel movement, I suppose. Um, yeah, I've learned recently that uh, the word incel was actually invented by a woman originally to describe her own uh, lonely heart's status, um, but has since been co-opted by uh, large groups of men, I think predominantly on 4chan and Reddit, who are really... Um, resentful of their, basically, inability to have sex with women and, uh, blame a sort of, I guess there's a mythology of, like, uh, the sexual dynamic between men and women in which, like, women are cheating, uh, regular men and, uh, like, feminism has ruined the traditional bond between men and women and, like, men have to strike back sort of thing, Mm. um, so, yeah, there's like a crazy amount of detail behind the, I guess, motivations behind this, but this isn't the first time that someone who self-identifies as an incel has committed a attack of this kind, um, the first one being Elliot Roger, who did a attack in a university maybe four or five years ago now. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, and he's kind of um, become a martyr for the incel movement, and in fact, Alec Messine, Missin, sorry, I'm butchering his last name, but he um, attributed... Um, the Rogers attack to his kind of attack this Monday Um, I guess this is an interesting space because while this is a um, group that is very united and does have a lot of violent um, uh, kind of hate speech within it in fact they were banned off uh, Reddit um, because of their kind of allusions to um, rape and violence against women and men who were identifying as having sexual intercourse. Um, it, it's an interesting dynamic because there's this debate emerging as what we cl- classify as a terrorist act. Um, obviously, this was a very horrific attack that kind of seemed to be uh, or at least was self-identified as an attack for movement or rebellion. But what do we classify as a terrorist attack, guys?
2: Well, I would think that a terrorist attack is, in its name, any sort of uh, physical violent attack that terrorises people and involves, you know, injuring or aiming to kill people. That's what I think it is. I don't think that it necessarily needs a, a religious or... Uh, kind of ethnic kind of aim I think as long as it aims to subjugate a certain group whether in this case it is women I would classify that as a terrorist attack I'm not sure what you guys would yeah well I guess um, personally I've always defined
0: terrorism as a tactic as opposed to something that has to be uh, coming from any particular group but uh, something that's done to inspire um, fear and terror in the population in service of a movement Um, So I I guess I would classify this broadly as terrorism. It's a guy who is trying to make a point about
2: a movement by inciting fear through violence. Yeah, and I feel like that's what all groups really aim to do. They try to further their um, objectives through fear and violence. Whether, you know, women won't have sex with them is the incentive or not.
1: See, I I tend to disagree and I actually agree with the Toronto Police and their kind of reluctance to classify this as a terrorist act. Um, For me, when I hear the word terrorist, I think of a political agenda or something that needs to be reformed or changed. And I think terrorist organizations do have a political motivation. They have an internal logic between their acts of violence and some sort of political or cultural change. And I don't think the Incel Rebellion does have any concrete policies. I think what we're seeing um, is more like a cult. I think actions of a cult that inspire violence aren't classified as terrorism. They're seen as some sort of religious or extremism or some act that... Kind of demonstrates their own loyalty to an ideology, uh, to a to a belief on how the world works. I don't think this wanted to propose some change to society. I think this was a very violent act. It, it was kind of like um, a public suicide. Yeah, like a cry of desperation, kind of in a as way. A, yeah, yeah, as opposed to something that proposed some change in society.
0: Right. That's really interesting. I mean, I think that. Um,
1: the, I guess you're right in saying that
0: this Alec uh, Manassian, I'm not good on the last name either, um, probably did not think that there would be any actual political ends achieved by this act, but it's not true to say that incels don't have policy proposals. They do. Um, compulsory Bride for Every Man is one. So, oh, you know, really? So, he could be drawing attention to, uh, you know, the kind of world he wants to live in and the consequences if it doesn't move in that direction. But I think
1: there is something inherently symbolic in a terrorist attack that they have, which is meant to link to their own um, kind of ideology. So when a, a terrorist group attacks a institution, they attack it as a symbol for the need for change in their own eyes. Obviously, I'm not saying this is like <laughs> proposing that there is a higher purpose to terrorism. I'm just saying there's an internal logic to their strategies. What we saw with Alex then is uh, an attack that was... Seemed to be just senseless violence. He wasn't targeting women. He was targeting Toronto citizens. That's true. He was driving down. He was doing it in a public way. And it, the footage at the end of the um, attack, when police did confront him, he was calling and kind of, uh, um, uh, calling on the police to actually kill him and to create him into a messiah because. He is part of what I would consider as a cult. Uh, A cult can have extremist elements and a cult can uh, push their members towards violence. I just don't think that that cult actually practically sees that affecting change in society. I don't think... I think they're from what I've read about the incels and as a kind of subsection of the red pill movement, I don't know if you guys know that, but Mm, it's kind of a men's rights activist blog uh, subreddit community... They are talking about a time that has ceased to exist. They're t- talking about a time pre feminism, pre women's rights, and they're calling for women to lose their rights and for men to become more dominant. I think when it comes to the incel movement, we're not talking about a political movement, we're not talking about, you know, uh, a religious movement, we're talking about young men who have become radicalized in this idea of this utopian society, which don't think will ever exist or at least i hope it never never does either i guess yeah
0: you're uh, i guess uh you know from the outside you can see that it's not really a feasible uh change that's going to occur so from that perspective it's not yeah it's not really a meaningful tactic but i guess the point on which i disagree is i think that they do think it is like they do think that this like apparently there was some podcast that like um some leaders in the incel community released straight afterwards being like this will be a sign to the world that you know, if feminism goes further, more people will have to die, and there's blood on feminism's hands. So th- I think they do.
2: They actually are at the point of delusion where they think this is a political act. Can, See, I'm, can I just say, Zizi, as you were saying that um, for some, for an act to be uh, to be labelled a te- as terrorism, there needs to be kind of a clear idea of policy change. There needs to be kind of a political ideological background. I would disagree in you saying that perhaps incel, the incel movement, is or this act is not an act of terrorism because i definitely i definitely do think that they have a a political ideology it might not be as strong as other political groups but i think that they definitely have an anti-feminist um uh, ideal, ideology behind their actions and feminism uh, I think is very uh, related to political ideology and you know progressive politics and I think they are wanting the backward politics because that's where a lot of the anti-feminism lies and, and I think they disagree with a lot of the change that's been happening recently with you know women's rights so even though they don't have the explicit policy changes change in mind that a lot of other um, terrorist groups have I don't think that it means that this is not a terrorist act.
1: i, I i don't deny that they have an ideology but i'm saying that 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 ideology belongs more in a uh, cultish status as opposed to a political a, a political one? movement i think but terrorist organizations are achieving political aims and are doing and are doing so through acts of like symbolic violence mm. real violence obviously but also that violence has an underlying message to it i think what we saw is an act of senseless violence and i, I think you're right it did terrorise me. I was very scared when I heard about this incel movement that was, like, kind of bringing young men to cause harm to other people, but I think all violence is terrorising. What distinguishes terrorising violence from terrorist violence is the fact that it's meant to achieve political aim. I think this was a man who was deeply disturbed, who took action against innocent people as a public display of what I think is a cult as opposed to a political organisation.
3: I mean, I j- okay, I'm just going to jump in here really quickly I don't think you sh- I don't think we should be classifying whether something is a um, terrorist attack or not based on the realism of their ideals or based on the realism of their thing of um, the realism or well the popularity of the movement, because we saw with a lot of because, I mean, you can argue that ISIS is quite you know, it's quite a fringy you know, ideals that will never come around but they're still committing these terrorist attacks anyway anyway that's my two cents.
1: i think what you're saying is correct and maybe that's me not um kind of voicing what i mean by like policy aims when i when i see the demands of say a terrorist group like isis they have concrete plans that or at least concrete statements that come after an attack. An attack happens and they say, this is because X policy hasn't been enacted. When I look at the incel movement, what I see is a group of uh, very isolated, predominantly young men who feel distanced from society, who have taken solace in a cultural identity that kind of tells them, you are not alone in your loneliness, I guess.
2: You forgot that they're very sexually frustrated.
1: And, and sexually frustrated young men. And there's, they've said that this person is to blame for your position in life and your feelings of inadequacy. And I think that is more in line with how cults operate. And I know that there are similarities between how terrorist groups recruit and how cults recruit. But when I see this kind of act of senseless violence that is not directed, that is kind of... Him seeking to become a messiah as opposed to a kind of visionary or a leader or a change maker, I th- I see that as a cult status, and I think we also need to think about the idea of what happens when we say someone is a rebellion seeker or a revolutionary or a terrorist organization. I think there's some sort of weird credibility that is gained in the That's movement so true. Mm. because we could say that this is just a subreddit, um, which it is. And it diminishes its status as a power to change society. And I think if we give them the status of a terrorist group, we suddenly give them this idea that their policy aims or their, you know, dystopian vision of society, in my opinion, yeah, right, could actually be enacted. I so
0: totally see what you're saying, actually, the Maggie was saying just before we started the segment that, um, oh, I'm going to mess up his name again, Alec Manassian um, saw himself as a terrorist. Um, and I guess it seems incredibly harmful to go along with his own labelling of himself. Because, yeah, I think um, that's so true. By saying a terrorist, it sounds like they're a legitimate political dissident force, which they don't really fall in that category. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, I, yeah, I do agree with Maggie. I think that especially if someone labels themselves as a terrorist, not to say that their word is everything, that means that they definitely have terrorist motives in their head. And even though they, they don't have concrete policy... Uh, changes in mind at the moment, they very possibly could have them in the future. And by looking at the kind of ideals and the kind of um almost their manifesto that they have, it does kind of sound silly where they were talking about Chad's being the attractive ideal male and Stacy's being the attractive promiscuous women that we all want to have sex with but oh no, Stacy said no to us. I know it sounds silly, but that is their manifesto in a way. And that could possibly lead to some sort of policy changes that they have in mind. So I think that we should take a little bit of a hint from the way that they perceive themselves because it could be a predictor for the future.
1: I I just I struggle to uh, agree with the fact that if someone says I'm doing this for a higher purpose and commits violence that we say yes this person was right to have some sort of claim to have some sort of higher purpose as opposed to a young man, completely delusional, who did senseless violence against innocent people.
2: No, Are he's you, still a young man who's completely delusional that did violence against people. But
1: I, I do, I do think that. But you give legitimacy to a movement that should not have legitimacy by calling them a terrorist. By calling them, by giving them the status of people who have a political motivation that is feasible, kind of unified, organized, um, and see. In my opinion, a terrorist group is someone you can negotiate with. A cult is someone who is driven by religious fanaticism.
2: But people don't negotiate with ISIS and ISIS's well, political do. motives I don't think a lot of people find feasible, especially even in the Muslim community, a lot of people do not agree with what ISIS says doing. There, there is a
1: legitimate political argument to be made that you can negotiate with terrorists and that you should. I think most mm. governments have ended up negotiating with their um, significant political uh, terrorist organisation. Um, Of course, no one wants to negotiate with terrorists, and very famously, uh, President W. Bush, uh, back in 2001, or around the time of the Iraq War, very famously said, we do not negotiate with terrorists, but the fact of the matter is, we always negotiate with terrorists, we always end up negotiating with terrorists. But we do not negotiate with cults and we do not negotiate with religious fanaticists who are just claiming senseless violence. I
0: think that's what's really interesting about this case as well is obviously this is the second time there's been a violent attack from the incel community given that we don't want to legitimise their aims and they don't really have something that they want that we can realistically give them or give them an alternative to. Like, how how do you even tackle this problem in law enforcement? You know, like, how how do you find people that, you know, maybe saying I hate all women and want them to die online or, you know, like, wh- where do you go from there? I think it's, like, quite one of the reasons it really shocked me is because there's no obvious next
1: step, so I guess that's, like, what we'll be thinking about going into the future. Okay, I th- think that's all we can talk about, but, of course, continue the conversation online. Tell us what you think by tweeting at SinRepresent or follow us at Facebook at facebook.com forward slash SinRepresent.
3: We now turn to the ISIS online takedown. Um, In recent days, Europol, which is a kind of international police organization within the European Union, and several uh, European member country, European member states, have taken, have have targeted ISIS and ISIS affiliates, affiliated websites and social media, and taken them, taken them down. So ISIS servers were seized in the Netherlands, Canada, and the, uni- the United States, while raids, while raids were conducted in Bulgaria, France, and Romania, and the U- and the United Kingdom also targeted domains.
1: Yeah, so this is an interesting story about um, how kind of terrorist groups operate, I guess, internationally. Um, ISIS has. Um, obviously lost a huge military battle in Syria. Uh, They've recently been pushed out of their main strongholds. And I guess this symbols a new kind of era of the ISIS movement where it moves to um, target, uh, I guess, new recruits and spread its message through media organizations. And I guess as an evolution of how you tackle ISIS as a non-military, military army threat uh we have to consider them as a media threat in the social social media presence
0: yeah totally i mean actually this uh news story really shocked me because i realized that like i've always known i guess about isis being on twitter and being on social media and that being a huge issue but um i didn't realize to what extent they really have like a quite establishment their own like establishment media really like they've got uh a media outlet called amark news agency um which is commonly uh Yeah, it's translated into nine different languages, um, which is, yeah, pretty crazy to hear about. And they've got, like, their own encrypted softwares, all these different things. So it sounds like this is going to make a huge difference to their ability to spread propaganda.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to note that they are speaking in multiple languages because in the recent years, we've seen that kind of the lone wolf actors that have been operational around the world, including in Australia, that have kind of proposed the ISIS, um, have been acting under the ISIS banner. They've been... Usually people who have been born in that nation who have become radicalised through association with these kind of media outlets, Um, often we talk about social media as a point of recruitment, but it seems like, you know, I guess I would call it traditional media formats are also being used by organisations like ISIS to spread their message. Yeah, totally. Um, and yeah, there have been a lot of quotes
0: of people saying that this is going to make a big difference. But there's also um, Charlie Winter from the International Center for the Study of Radicalisation and Political Violence, the ICSR, at King's College said, propaganda is important, but it isn't and never has been the be-all and end-all of recruitment, and these takedown operations will impact on it, but it's not a solution. Um, and also that ISIS may just
1: move more onto social media and other file-sharing platforms as a result of this. But it, a small part of me kind of sees this, uh, I hate to say this is a good thing, but like they're moving on to a public media platform, which is a bit more open and standardized. Like As problematic as Twitter is, at least it's this familiar platform that law authorities are aware of and comfortable with, while these like, back-end uh, security encrypted uh, websites, which are a little more harder to kind of monitor, have been blocked away, uh, rightly so. And also I think the fact of the matter is any kind of non-military movement against ISIS is going to damage them because they no longer have kind of an active army or base in uh, Syria or Iraq, or at least their strongholds are being diminished. Um, I think now that they are moving on to kind of um, lone wolf recruitment or at least small operation recruitment and cell movements is uh, means that we need to adapt our strategy to target, you know, how they spread their message a lot of terrorism is the propaganda of the deed and for it to be political violence you need some sort of political authority saying commit these acts of violence yeah
0: right absolutely and like um i'm just reading here that some of the stuff that they would put on their websites would be uh like the actual videos of executions and like important military information about battles um and like things like that you can't put that on twitter if you put a you know like an execution video on twitter it will get reported so it's like it's just throwing up more hurdles for them i guess um, and interestingly as well, apparently uh, part of the importance of um, the Amak website to ISIS was that um, it was sort of like an archive of all of their propaganda to date and that um, because of yeah the losses that they're um, incurring in Syria right now, um, they're really trying to like build a legacy online of all the things that they did there and all of their acts and if they lose that archive, which it sounds like they have, um, that really... like just strikes a massive blow to all of the propaganda
1: they'd built up over all that time. Yeah, this is of course not the first time that um, the last time a big hit of ISIS branded media happened was actually on Twitter, which is probably why they're so uh, drawn to the idea of archiving their content. Twitter did a massive hit kind of knocking out a lot of their major channels and a lot of their uh, Twitter handles. Um, although I, I would be nervous to say, you mentioned before, that they're moving on to Twitter where content can be flagged. Twitter, of course, is notorious for, for not, not flagging. Not having a lot of Nazis on it posting things that should definitely be flagged. Yeah, exa- not just Nazis, <laughs> well, but um, ISIS members, yeah. and of course from our previous discussion, perhaps even incel members, yeah. who are advocating active violence against uh, civilians. I think this is... Um, It it does kind of put more uh, weight on the need for Twitter to reform its policies to make sure violence isn't being advocated on its platform. But it also means that it is on a platform that we can monitor, that we can flag, that we can very easily kind of knock out their points um, of attack. Whereas, you know, uh, the radio station Albion and the magazine Rumidia. Um, Will probably more more hard for the public to kind of know about and therefore report and take action on.
0: Totally, and I guess, um, just off the top of my head, Twitter has a network structure as well, so it's so easy to go from one person to another mm. and, um, like, follow leads through there. So, yeah, I mean, this is really interesting, and I didn't even realise that this is something that could so easily be done. But, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see given that ISIS is now so reliant
2: on its, like, image. Mm what this will do to that. Yeah, I think a lot of terrorist groups do require propaganda to fuel its ideas, and I think that's how um, ISIS became so popular in the first place, that they did use the internet and on social media platforms to reach people. So I think they're just trying to continue that um, those kind of tactics, but now I think those you know tactics are not maybe working as well as they did before so yeah
1: yeah i think um anti-terrorist uh policy is kind of taken into account this new uh, this new era of how terrorism is organized and perpetrated i think it, it's quite interesting to note that um only you know it was only in 2004 that our main enemy terrorist organization was al-qaeda um, and they've been very rapidly replaced by isis who have Uh, this is weird to say but like successfully rebranded terrorism as an online platform Uh, we have to remember that Al-Qaeda their previous form of spreading out their message was sending like cassette tapes to um, Al Jazeera and other media outlets in order to get their message across nowadays ISIS is tweeting ISIS is creating YouTube videos and they're on our platforms they're very tech savvy
2: they are tech savvy um,
1: anyone who saw that um, documentary it was a good ghost
0: State, something like that that was in Melbourne last year um, about uh, ISIS's media apparatus. Like, the films that they make are incredibly high quality mm. and, like, weirdly inspiring to watch. Like, you know what they're <sighs> about, but, like, the music is driving and inspirational and it's, like, these panning very shots. very cinematic. It is, exactly. And, like, uh, yeah, just, like, the level of funding that they direct towards, that obviously means it's been paying off.
1: And I think it's also too important to note that because they are, <laughs> they have a weird media division to them, when people are recruited to go to ISIS, they're recruited not only as representatives of, you know, Australian ISIS, but they're recruited in order to let that message be spread to other Australian potential recruits. Uh, when you go over there, you will be speaking with a heavy Australian accent. You'll be showing off to all your Australian members, blah, 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 Um and it's a part of the ISIS strategy to kind of create its... make it seem like an international movement by putting these foreign fighters right at the forefront. They purposely put the foreign fighters at the front so they can really advertise them as kind of an international brand. Uh, it kind of betrays the actual reality of what a foreign fighter is overseas. Often they're killed quite quickly. They're much more expendable to the military forces. Um, and, you know, they're generally... Um, not treated well within the ranks, but they are kind of given a weird limelight within ISIS because they want to promote this image of them being an international brand. Yeah. It's, it's so weird to talk about terrorism so as a brand, weird. but we this is how they work. Um, I remember when that article
0: came out in The Atlantic like a couple of years ago about that guy in Footscray um Musa Antonio who's, like, an Italian bloke from Footscray who became, like, the biggest ISIS recruiter in Australia and is, like, a massive hipster, basically. Uh, it was really crazy to read. Yeah, he's, like... Even his personal branding is so, like, oh, I'm a cool guy, I'm laid back, I'm really friendly. These are just my religious and political beliefs. Mm. And I, I want to be friends with everyone, but ultimately that's not going to work out, but, you know. It was really insane to read that you realise that, like, they're trying to have this
1: really personable image in some ways. Mm -hmm. Well, there was a period of time, I I believe it was either last year or the year before, where when ISIS was still an active military threat in Syria, they were able to, they had this advertising strategy where there was a lot of pictures of ISIS fighters with kittens and cats. What? And uh, selling merchandise and having small children wearing the merchandise of ISIS. It it was a very strange, kind of, move within the ISIS uh, kind of Twitter feeds. But it was them trying to rebrand as, hey, we're cool, blah, 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 blah. And it felt so... Alienating
2: and strange?
1: It was was bizarre. It was very surreal to kind of see the reporting about
2: and kind Uh, of the intention of the recruiters. Yeah, I think... I think it's hard to believe it, but I do think ISIS is marketing themselves. They're not just like, you know, a terrorist group trying to, you know, incite fear, but they really are trying to sell themselves. And I think it's hard to pair that idea with the image that they're trying, that they're hurting innocent people in the, you know, in the path of whatever political ideologies, their political ideals. But yeah, they're doing all that they can to make themselves appealing. It's just very contradictory.
3: I mean... I mean, terrorist groups need need to have, you know, a rather significant propaganda wing and marketing, I guess, marketing unit to legitimise themselves, and legitimise themselves to other people who want to join their organisation, mm. yeah. Or who might be led to joining it?
0: I think it's really interesting as well. A lot of the stuff targeting, um, a lot of women to become like uh, brides to soldiers. Um, that that's really. Um, sold as this kind of, like, almost sexy and glamorous lifestyle of, like, you know, they've got women, like, with really expensive handbags out in the desert and stuff, and it's, like, they're brides, and... It's, yeah, it's really crazy. Like, I can see how that might appeal to somebody.
2: I actually did hear, um, you know, that... Uh, the ISIS fighters are kind of glamorized to women, specifically targeting women, and they're meant to be kind of these attractive, eligible bachelors, and yeah, they're literally going down every route trying to appeal to every group that they can to build their following, it's insane Of
1: course, like, the realities of what happens on the ground for foreign fighters is much more horrific, especially if you are a woman. Uh, Except that's why so many of them try and come back. Yeah, I mean, we we constantly hear stories about women who have returned from kind of these violent areas being like, this was a horrific thing, I was completely bamboozled and conned into it, and it's it's a violent society we shouldn't
3: forget. Um, Should we talk about the... So there was also another thing where... French police investigating a woman for suspected ties to ISIS discovered that, according to French officials, uh, that the woman had a USB drive with containing the personal details of hundreds of French police officials.
2: Yeah, which is crazy. thousands thousands, I think. Yeah. Which I think that is so scary. And how sus is that? That's so suspicious.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, they're obviously doing a lot of data
2: breaching, which is,
0: yeah, I feel like this is like the second big ISIS in Europe bust of the
2: week, Mm -hmm. Um, but it just makes you think, what else is there that... We don't. I Not also that. do feel like, if, you guys can disagree with me if you want to, but I do also feel like France, for some reason, is that one country in Europe that is just a hotbed for like ISIS-led violence for some reason. Why do you guys think that is? Uh, there have been a series of high-profile
1: cases um, over the past few years of very violent acts in France. Um and we've seen France being a repeated target. What they say, what a lot of analysts are saying, is the reason why France is such a target for ISIS yeah. is because there's this real um, problem of people feeling accepted in France. Uh, French France, society. French society, yeah. So French, uh, France kind of advertises itself as a completely secular society yeah. uh, that is non-religious at all, but in doing so, they create conditions which make it very inhospitable to new uh, uh, newcomers, Islamic migrants. Yeah. Um, so, of course, France um, tried to introduce, and I think successfully introduced, uh, the so-called Berkha ban, it's also one of one of its largest parties in the last presidential election was Marie Le Pen, who leads uh, La France Nationale, um, who is a very xenophobic, very anti-Muslim organization mm. um, with historical ties to anti-Semitism. Um, France doesn't uh, advertise itself as a hospitable place to new migrants and because of that it is very easy for them to become radicalised mm. uh, that's what a lot of analysts are saying um, of course the issue is a lot more complex and we have to consider the fact of French involvement in uh violent hotspots, which leads to them being a political target for isis and their active military presence
2: um i have heard a lot of stories in france where you know a lot of muslim newcomers do not feel welcome and they feel a lot of xenophobia and i feel like that's kind of the seed that sprouts all this not to say that in other european countries they are you know that it's very different but i think in france in particular there's perhaps a lot more
3: islamophobia um just jumping in on the burqa ban. So I believe, uh, from my understanding of the burqa ban situation, um, the one of the um, one of the local, uh, or I guess councils, or local political subdivision, uh, tried to ban the burqa, but it got struck down. Mm. That's from my understanding of the issue.
1: Well, obviously, this is quite a complex issue, and we'll probably be covering it, unfortunately, at another time during this year. But of course, we want to uh, hear what you think. Uh, Send us a tweet at at sinrepresent or talk to us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash sinrepresent. We're going to go to our next section, and that is. This week on Head to Head, we'll be discussing what was the uh, best handshake of the week. Uh, This week, we saw a number of very um, uh, performative and wonderful handshakes, some symbolizing great uh, achievements in international politics and others just showing a weird bromance between two allies. Um, And, of course, we've got a bit
2: of a weird one at the end. What are our favorite handshakes of the week, guys? Well, I think that the very interesting one was between Macron- Mac- President Macron and President Trump. Apparently it was a very, very long handshake, and I just think that's kind of funny. Oh, well, it wasn't just a handshake. It was a series of very... Uh, Romancey y interactions. Affectionate. Affectionate.
1: There was a lot of love between America and France. You you know when you
2: are like kind of holding someone that you kind of like really like and you just kind of keep holding onto their hand and you don't really know when to like let it go. That's kind of one of the There was definitely
1: that feeling in that final long hold on the White House (laughs) The fingertips just kind of graze each other. (laughs) Um, we've seen it described as a festival of macho touching,
0: so yeah. that's a beautiful way I, to put it.
1: I think this is a very positive sign between a leader who is seen as kind of like at the forefront of the EU at the moment, Emmanuel Macron has been pushing for the Iran deal, he's also been pushing for EU um, kind of unity and a sense of internationalism. Maybe this is a fledgling bromance and pushing President Trump to more, I guess, uh, standard worldviews on international politics. Yeah, and um, I think Macron did uh, speak afterwards
0: saying that he didn't really think that Trump was likely to change his position on the Iran deal, but maybe uh, some of that macho touching would have got to him after some time, so (laughs) I guess we'll see. um, Yeah, another handshake that I guess was widely commented on this week was uh, at the official meeting between the North Korean and South Korean leaders, Kim Jong-un and Moon Jae-in, in in which, if I'm getting this correctly... um, uh, Moon Jae-in made some remark like, oh, when am I going to get to go to the north? And Kim Jong-un like held his hand and they took a step over the border together and back, which is adorable in a really weird way.
1: I think it's adorable in a very practical way. Um, <laughs> north Korea and South Korea still are technically on an armistice from the Korean War, which of course started in 1950. Uh, this armistice has never actually culminated in a proper uh, treaty or declaration of peace i think this is a huge symbolic moment i think this is the north the first time that kim jong-un has visited south korea and of course the first time that president moon jae-in has visited north korea this is a huge part of a, a very fraught and dangerous hotspot. um the photo opportunity of course occurred at the uh demilitarized zone and i think uh what we should all acknowledge was the fact that it occurred outside the famous diplomatic blue houses so on the border of north and south korea there's a series of diplomatic huts they're um say uh, six metre long buildings that go across the border and traditionally this was the only way that North and South Korea would meet in these tiny little blue huts one side on the South Korean side and the other on the North Korean side and they would refuse to cross the border right. so they would stand on either side of the border within the hut, within the box and, and negotiate, oh this was God. the one neutral zone on the neutral zone That's between two mm. very dangerous uh, kind of Um, political and um, military forces, but for the first time they walked over and I thought it was a beautiful moment. (laughs) I certainly got a little bit um, happy when I saw all the photos. Um, Of course, we won't know how um, extensive the political ramifications are until, of course, we um, see the results of the peace process.
2: I think I want to change my mind now. Now that I know that... Having seen the significance of the North-South Korea handshake, I do think that the the cuter one is definitely the Macron and Trump one, but I think that the one between Kim Jong-un and Moon Jae-in, I think it's very important and significant.
1: Well, this is... Another, I I, I hate to say the word cute, but it it does feature a pug, um, but it does feature a pug doing a very awkward kind of uh, salute. This is, of course, a Scottish man uh, who trained his dog to do a Nazi salute, um, has been indicted. Uh, Oscar, do you want to tell us? Well, not indicted. Oh, sorry.
3: But he was, yeah, he was um, charged and found guilty of uh, posting offensive material, I believe, and... Grossly ma- offensive material and was fined uh, £800, pounds, which is equivalent to roughly um, a bit over $100,000 in um, Australian currency, and he is vowed to appeal the ruling.
1: Yeah, of course, this sparked a bit of a debate over political um, the freedom of expression versus what is seen as a hate speech act. Uh, but we want to know what you think. What was the most significant or cutest or uh, most interesting handshake of the week? Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this week. We'll be back next week from three to four p.m. on Sin Nation and streaming online on sin.org.au. You can stay tuned for its literature. Uh, remember, you can catch up on this episode past episodes by listening to our podcast on itunes and omni and of course we want to hear what you think you can send us facebook uh, feedback <laughs> or of course answer our head-to-head question on, on twitter at, at @sinrepresent or on facebook at facebook.com forward slash sin this show is produced by myself zizi Avril, and maggie Lou. um i'm zizi i'm nikki i'm oscar i'm claudia and remember to stay, stay political, political.